Good evening. I'm not necessarily a familiar face around here, um, so I just want to introduce myself. I'm Noel Snyder, and I'm a program manager at the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship, and it's my uh, privilege to be able to uh, be here sharing the word with you. If you want to open up your Bible, we're uh, hearing now from God's Word in Psalm 51. This is on page 452 of your Bibles, if you're using the ones that are there in the seats. Psalm 51. Beginning with verse 0, which is the superscription. To the leader, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty a sinner, when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being, therefore teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain in me a willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O oh Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The word of the Lord. I want to talk tonight about what it means to say, I'm sorry. More specifically, what it means to say, I'm sorry, as a Christian. And in order to set the stage for that, I want to begin with an amazing affirmation, a wondrous, mysterious truth that God has created us to live in relationship. God has created us to, for connection with one another. Everything in our, the deepest parts of our being longs to be connected with one another. Some of us may have been so hurt 
in our family relationships, in some friend relationships, some other significant relationships, that we may not be fully aware of this deep desire in our lives to be connected with one another. But no matter how far we've pushed it down, no matter how long we've ignored it, it's still there, driving our deep longings and our desires and our behaviors, this desire on the deep parts of our being to connect. And that's because God has made it that way. We might even call it our human operating system. That's how we're made to exist in relationship with one another. So the problem with relationships, though, is that there is no relationship that happens in the abstract, right, without people in it. Every relationship has to happen in the real world with real people. And the problem with people, the problem with you and me, is that we often do things to break the bonds of the relationships that we have with one another. Which is why it's so important for us to learn this, this basic tool that we've been given to repair relationships. This tool called the apology. I want to talk tonight about the surprising, sometimes even the paradoxical, freedom and empowerment that comes from learning how to say, I'm sorry, and knowing how to say it well, and knowing how to say it often, in the right time, in the right way. Before I go any further, though, I just want to acknowledge it feels a little bit funny to me to stand up here and say, I want to talk about apologies tonight. Um, does, does that anybody else feel that? Does, does it feel like we're, I don't know, in kindergarten or something, right? I, come on, kids. All right, all right. So tonight, I'm going to talk about what it means to say, I'm sorry. What do we do when we hurt somebody? Anybody? What do we, what do, we do when we say something bad or do something bad? Come on. What do we say? Good job! All right. We can just be done now and go on to our snack time. I mean, doesn't it sound funny for a preacher to stand up to college students and say, I want to talk about how to say I'm sorry. I mean, shouldn't we have moved to a higher level in our relationship levels, in our relationship lessons by now? And that, my friends, is the bad news. I take it from an older sinner like me. This is a skill that you're going to have to learn and to practice for the rest of your life. The best, most mature, most life-giving, most satisfying relationships are not the ones where people suddenly don't ever have to say, I'm sorry anymore. In fact, it's just the opposite. The best, most satisfying, most life-giving, loving relationships are the ones where people know how to say, I'm sorry in the right way, at the right time, saying it clearly, saying it often. And so we can thank God that there are so many examples in the Bible of knowing how to say, I'm sorry, well. And one of them is what we just read tonight from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You know, there's a lot of great stuff that's been written in the last couple decades about how to say, I'm sorry, what makes for a good apology. Uh, we've studied this issue scientifically. You can find those articles online. I'm going to be drawing from some of those insights 
tonight. But what I want to focus on even more so tonight, even more than what I would call the anatomy of an apology, is the underlying impulse, the heart posture that enables us to learn this skill well. So uh, another way of saying this is it, it's, it, it's just as important to learn the dance step of an apology as it is to also learn how to hear the underlying music that animates it. And that's what I want to focus on tonight, this underlying music that animates and enables us to say, I'm sorry. So uh, as we listen now again through, uh, as we explore Psalm 51 together, I want you to listen with me for that impulse, for the, the music that underlies the dance step of apologies. So as I listen to the dance uh, or to the underlying music of Psalm 51, I hear at least three spiritual impulses that enable us to say, I'm sorry, well. These are three postures of the heart that enable us to come to a place of admitting our own sin and asking for forgiveness. Although it's not usually my style to do this, tonight I've got uh, three words that start with R that, we're, uh, that I'm going to uh, um, label for each of these impulses. So I've got three R's for you tonight. And the first word, the first R, is recognize. In order for any of us to be able to say, I'm sorry, well, we first have to have the spiritual impulse of recognizing that we have done something wrong and recognizing the harm that has resulted in it, which on the surface seems uh, pretty simple, right? Pretty simple, just like apologies seem pretty simple, right? But I'm not so sure about that. Let's, let's remember how this psalm begins. So what was the first thing that it said under, in your Bible under the words Psalm 51? What did it say? A psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. But wait, the prophet who? Bathsheba who? Why did Nathan have to come to David? Have you ever heard this story? David has committed these two grievous sins. And it looks like he's just going to try to cover it up. He's just going to try to pretend that it doesn't exist, that it's not there, and, and then he's just going to hope that nobody finds out about it, which is why then the prophet Nathan eventually has to come in and confront him. So incidentally, that story sounds very familiar and current in the age of Me Too. Of course, by the time we get to Psalm 51, we hear David saying in verses 3 and 4, we hear him say, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Uh, against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you're justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. But it wasn't always like that, was it? If it wasn't for Nathan, who knows if David ever would have come clean about what he had done. Not only in committing adultery, or we might even say committing sexual assault with Bathsheba, but then trying to arrange it so that it would look like Uriah, her husband, was the one who had got her pregnant. And then when that didn't work out, arranging it so Uriah got killed on the front lines in battle. But here's the really interesting story as I read it, this story of Nathan coming to confront David about this sin. It's not just that David knew exactly what he had done and he simply needed to confess and repent of it. There's a sense in which David in this story seems not even to recognize the magnitude of his sin 
until Nathan tricks him into pe passing judgment on himself by telling him a story in code language about this great injustice that has happened in which David is the perpetrator, but David doesn't know he's the perpetrator until Nathan gets to the end of the story and he says, you are the man. And it's only then that David says, I have sinned against the Lord. You can find this story in 2 Samuel 12 if you want to read it more fully at a later time. But here's the thing about how that story works. It's not just David, is it? It works on us too, doesn't it? It would be easy for us to sit back and to pass judgment on David for the, the way that he acts here, which is reprehensible. There's no doubt about that. But I wonder how many of us can actually relate to these underlying dynamics in this story. I, w I wonder how many of us know that feeling of knowing exactly what we have done and, and knowing that it was wrong, but being too stubborn or too prideful or maybe even just too fearful to admit what, it has, what has happened. And so we cover it up and we hope that it goes away. Uh, you feel me on that? I know I, I feel that. But I wonder, even beyond this, this, these instances of, of trying to hide what we know that we've done wrong, I wonder if we can also relate to this experience of having a prophet Nathan in our lives. By which I mean this experience of having the relationships in our lives being the, like a mirror to us of our sin. I wonder of us, uh, how many of us have had that experience of not even truly recognizing what we have done before somebody, one of our close relationships, comes and confronts us. And then all of a sudden we see it clearly and we're ashamed of it and there's nowhere to hide. I was talking with a group of guys this week and all of us are married men. And we were talking about this experience that we've all had, this experience in which our wives have served for us like a kind of mirror of our own sin. And I'm not talking about our wives are always nagging us or uh, getting on our case or something like that. I'm talking about just the simple fact of living in an intimate relationship with someone else, trying to love that person well, and, and realizing in the course of trying to love another person well, just how, that we were way bigger sinners than we ever thought we were. It, it doesn't have to be marriage, though. Any close relationship will do, roommates. It can be a family relationship, sometimes even our co-workers. God can use any of these relationships to bring us to a greater recognition of who we are and the harm that we often cause and the sinful impulses that are in our hearts, which, which we might otherwise be oblivious to. So that's the first spiritual impulse I want us to hear in Psalm 51, which enables us to say, I'm sorry, well, it's this, it's this posture of opening our hearts to the recognition of what we have done, the damage that has come about as a result of our thoughts, our words, our deeds. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. With all these accusations and revelations and uh, uh, of, of misconduct and harassment uh, keep coming out in the news day by day, week by week, Sometimes, I don't know about you, but I feel like it could be so disheartening to read some of these apologies. Are you with me? Some of these just terrible apologies, even if, if people even bother to apologize for what they uh, supposedly have done in the first place. Some of these so-called apologies are so vague, so non-committal, you get the feeling that uh, some of these men 
who are accused of doing these things, they think that the only thing that they've done wrong is to get caught, right? That's, that's the feeling that you get, which is why I am so grateful, even though it may not always feel like a gift, I am so grateful for the gift of this peculiar people called the church who, who enable me and remind me and teach me to learn how to recognize my sin, to open my heart, and to confess it day by day, week by week. It's not just the, the act of confession itself. That's one thing. It's also the spiritual impulse that lies beneath it. Practicing that posture of opening our hearts and saying, search my heart, O God, and see if there is any unclean way in me. So that's the first spiritual impulse. Recognition. Simply recognizing what we have done and the harm it has caused. Every good apology will have this basic impulse of saying, this is what I did. And I recognize that these were the consequences. And I'm ashamed. And I'm sorry. The second spiritual impulse, the second R, is the impulse of repentance. Verse 6. You desire truth in the inward being, therefore teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. Can you hear in these verses the desire not just to be forgiven of one sin, one time, not just to spend our apologies like there's some sort of get out of jail free card that we have an endless supply of, but rather to have our whole being renewed from the inside out so that we no longer desire what is wrong, what is harmful for us, but we desire rather the good that God has created us for. Can you hear in these verses what it looks like not only to, to recognize what we have done, but even even more of that, to repent of what we have done, to, to turn from our misplaced desires, to renounce our sinful ways, and to walk in a different direction. This is the posture of heart in which we call upon God to renew and sustain in us a right heart, a new and a willing spirit. Now again, just like the recognition part, the, the uh, repentance is something that often may sound simple at first, but it turns out it's a lot more difficult to walk in that way in, with any amount of integrity. So it's easy for us to say, what's so difficult about just making a commitment and sticking to it, right? You just say that you're going to do it and then do it. But any of us who have struggled with any sorts of recurring sins in our lives, whether it was envy or, or lust or gluttony or vanity or uncontrolled anger, greed, any of us who have tried to turn from these ways, we know how difficult it is to say that we're never going to do it and then find ourselves keep doing it over and over again. Now, there is sometimes where some exceptional cases, people are able to leave those things behind just all of a sudden like that. Praise God for those times. But that's not the norm, which is why I think Jesus tells us that we need to be ready to forgive our brothers and sisters, not just seven times, but 77 times for the things that they do against us. Repentance is not just a one-time occurrence in which we repent and then our sin is just gone for the rest of our lives. Of course, there's going to be that initial moment of decision and committal. And we can call that repentance too. Sure, I don't have a problem with that, but I want to be clear here that it doesn't end there. Repentance is a lifelong process, a lifelong commitment to allowing the renewing power of the Holy Spirit 
to permeate every area of our lives. It's a lifelong posture of the heart in which we say again and again, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Which reminds me of that great passage from Romans chapter 7, which is notoriously difficult to pronounce out loud. So I'm just going to go for it here, but but just uh, pray for me here as I try to read this one out loud from Romans 7. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but the sin that dwells within me. I made it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) What Paul is saying here is that it's perfectly possible for all of us. Actually, it's normal for human beings to have this experience of when we're in our right minds, we can acknowledge what is good, we can acknowledge what is right, but then we find that we often lapse into a state where we're not in our right minds. We find that we're pulled along by desires that we hardly have any control over, and we, we feel incapable of resisting that sin that is at work within us, which is precisely why what Paul says next in Romans chapter 8 is such good news. What he says next is, but you are not in the flesh, you are in the spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ from the dead will give life also to your mortal bodies through His Spirit that dwells in you. This is what enables us to repent. It's the assurance that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the assurance that the Spirit now dwells in us, bringing life to our flesh through the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Every good apology will be animated by a spirit of not only acknowledging what is wrong and recognizing what we have done and the harm that it has caused, but also a commitment to repentance, a commitment to repairing what has gone wrong, a commitment to rebuilding trust, to learning how to love well, to seeking the mind of Christ, to having our hearts renewed by the one who has the power to renew them, the Holy Spirit. Now, it may be the case that there are certain sinful patterns or addictions that some of us have that are going to require an extra amount of help because they've taken such hold in our lives that we need to have help from someone else who's been there that can help us out of that. And if that's you tonight, I want to encourage you to take that step, make that call, make that appointment, whether it's with a pastor or a counselor or some other kind of professional. Repentance is going to look different for each of us because each of us is in different circumstances. But, but what unites us all is that core impulse, that core commitment to walking in step with the Spirit of God, not just repeating the same old pattern that we know so well of promising to do better and then messing up again, but rather committing to do whatever it takes to learn how to walk in step with the Spirit. So the first R is recognition. The second R is repentance. And now the third R, release. So one of the most curious things about this psalm, I don't know if you noticed this as we were reading, but there's this this way in which the psalmist seems to assign to God responsibility that we would often think of as being things that we are responsible for doing, right? Did you notice this? 
So, uh, for instance, if you take a look at verse 15, there's this phrase, O Lord, it's the one that called us into worship. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. What do you mean, O Lord, open my lips? Open your own lips. (laughs) What are you talking about? But we see this over and over again in, in Psalm 51. It's this spiritual impulse that I want to call release. And it's such an important heart posture for us to learn to develop if we're going to learn how to say I'm sorry well. And why do I think it's so important? Well, here's why. One of the things, we all know this, one of the things that can ruin a good apology is an attempt to justify ourselves, right? An attempt to rationalize our behavior, to explain away the, the offense that we have caused, to, to explain it to such an extent that you give the person that you're apologizing to the, the impression that the thing that really happened was that they, it was their fault for being, uh, uh, being hurt or offended by what you did rather than your own fault for what you did. This, this attempt to, to justify ourselves, to be defensive, to, to rationalize our behavior, which is why it's so important to cultivate this impulse to release ourselves, to release control of the outcome, to release ourselves to the mercy of God, ask for forgiveness, and rely on the forgiveness and the mercy of other people. Even though this impulse may be probably the most basic of all three of these, I think it also is, maybe for that same reason, the most difficult. Think about it. How many times have you avoided apologizing to somebody because you were afraid of how they were going to respond? And that's a vulnerable place to be, being in the place of opening yourselves up and releasing yourself to to be at the mercy of how that person responds, whether to forgive you or not to forgive you, whether to be mad at you and how long to be. And so so have you ever found yourself doing this? You you know that you should apologize. You want to, but you, you... You just feel like your heart is hardened to it because you're really afraid of what's going to happen. Anybody with me? I mean, especially nowadays, anything that we do can can be broadcast across the world in, in a single moment. I mean, that's a vulnerable place to be. So I can understand why we'd be wary of trusting ourselves, of releasing ourselves to God and to another person. And yet, ultimately, I think we all know that there is no other way. If we truly want to, mean, want to know what it means to say, I'm sorry, as a Christian, if we, if we truly want to feel that freedom of owning up to who we are and what we've done, we're going to have to rele- learn to release ourselves to the mercy of God and to the mercy of others. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Can you hear the freedom in that? Can can you hear how freeing it is to release ourselves to God's mercy? Not trying to justify ourselves, not trying to control the outcome, not trying to explain it away, but simply saying, God, I need a new heart. I need to be made new. I need a heart that's tender and responsive to you. And if I'm going to have a heart that's tender and responsive to you, it's going to have to be you, God, who, who does it. Because you're the only one, only one who has the power. I have come to the end of my power, and I need your help. Oh, Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. A broken and a contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. 
Can you feel that impulse of release? That impulse of, of casting ourselves on God's mercy, of letting go, of saying, this is who I am. There's no hiding anymore. Can you feel that impulse of, of trusting God's promise to receive our broken hearts, to forgive us, to cleanse us? Can you feel that feeling of empowerment that, that comes from releasing ourselves into God's hands? That feeling of empowerment that comes from saying, God, I'm yours. Make of me what you will. The great 19th century preacher George MacDonald has said that humanity finds it hard to get what we want because we do not want the best. And in a similar way, MacDonald says, God finds it hard to give because God would give the best and we humans do not take it. I wonder if there's anything standing in the way of you taking what God has to give tonight. I wonder if there's anything the Lord might be prompting you to recognize, to repent of, to release, and trust in the Spirit's power to make your heart new. A broken and a contrite heart you will not despise, O oh God. We rest in that promise tonight. And so may it be said of us tonight. May it be said of us that we are people who embody this prayer. My heart I offer to you, O oh God, promptly and sincerely. Amen.